Good morning. I'm Dave Selvig, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens. I'll be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 4 from the New American Standard Bible. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression that were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead, who are already dead, more than the living, who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity. And it is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the man who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this, too, is vanity and striving after wind. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to service this morning. We are continuing in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're asking the question, what's the point? What's the point? In uh, what we're going to talk about today, I don't uh, claim to be an expert, and I don't claim to come from the perfect perspective 
but I want to help you hear about the, uh, these topics from a slightly different perspective, and my hope is that I can give us, our congregation, some language with which to continue the conversation beyond the sermon that you're going to hear today. <clears throat> and what we're talking about today is the idea of oppression, and as it relates prim- primarily to our country, it's my understanding that the conversation is really between white people and black people. And as somebody who is neither of those, I feel a bit like the third wheel. And the metaphor that I like to use is mom and dad are in a dysfunctional relationship in the front row. Dad's driving, mom's in the passenger seat, and I'm the third wheel in the back. And uh, it's their fight, it's their dysfunction, it's their relationship But I'm in the car with them, and we're all going to the same place. Every once in a while, one of them turns around and insincerely asks me what I think, (laughs) or asks me to take a side, or uh, just wants to make sure the temperature in the car is okay. But really, it's not about me. But nevertheless, here I am, along for the ride. And that's kind of how I feel about how things are in our country today. Today's sermon is just the very, very beginning uh, of a larger process, or maybe it's part of a process you've been uh, going through. But for our church, it's going to be a multi-part and ongoing conversation that we're going to have as a church uh, in the months and hopefully years to come as this conversation gets weaved into what it means for us to be a church in our day and age today here in this country. We have some opportunities coming up. Uh, We're going to, in November, have our denomination puts on an experience, a multi-day experience called J2M, or Journey to Mosaic. And in our church, uh, Kent Lotus, who is our new, newly elected member of the leadership team, is going to be leading the charge for our church, and I'll refer to that a little bit later. Um, we also will have other sermons and discussions and opportunities to experience uh, the other side of the story, if you will. And I also recognize that this topic we're going to touch on today, it's much easier to not touch upon it. It's much easier to not talk about it as a church. It's much easier for you to be private in your own perspective and experience and uh, maybe take to Facebook once in a while, uh, leave it to the Twitter headlines. But for us as a community to not talk about it, that's the path of lesser resistance. But I don't think Ecclesiastes 4 which we have to talk about today, is going to let us get away with that. And uh, truth be told, I was hoping we can talk about this sometime in October or November, uh, but we're going to be in the book of James by then. And there's no uh, explicit um, chapter on oppression the way there is today. So we're going to dive in and trust that God will meet us where we're at. I'd also like to offer you two resources, two previous sermons, Uh, that are related to today's sermon. The first is from March 9th, 2014, where I talked about the nature of power. And then uh, a year earlier, June 9th, 2013, a sermon called Love, where I talked about homosexuality in the church. 
I'd love for you to listen to those uh, if you can. Uh, both are rather long, which will help you appreciate our 30-something minute sermons that we're getting used to uh, this summer. Okay? For example, the homosexuality sermon, love, that's 59 minutes. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so today, I would like us to first start by thinking about the pervasive and yet elusive nature of oppression. Verse 1 says, I looked again. He's not just looking, he has to look again because first time he missed it. It's hard to see. Uh, another guy talking about the idea of racism and systemic injustice and the nature of oppression, talking about how pervasive yet elusive it is. He says, it's like trying to read blue letters with blue glasses on. Visualize that. Verse 1 again says, all the acts of oppression. So the, uh, the preacher, as uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is called, uh, has to look again, and when he does, he sees all the acts of oppression. It's everywhere. It's done by everyone to everyone. No one is exempt. Everybody is partaking in the acts of oppression that is all around us. It's absolutely pervasive. However, it's elusive. And unless you look again, you can't really see that it's happening or how it's happening or how much it's happening and how you might be partaking in the acts of oppression. It's especially hard to see your own participation in it. And besides being pervasive and elusive, it also creates despair and hopelessness. Verse 1, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. Tears of the oppressed. Why the despair? Why does pervasive and elusive oppression lead to despair and hopelessness. Verse 1 again says, on the side of their oppressors was power. And what the preacher means by power in this case is the power to create the system. It's not that somebody's able to overpower you. They overpower you by using not just the might that they have, but also their right. They have the authority to create the system which does the heavy lifting of oppression. And so the oppressor doesn't have to actively or directly do acts of oppression because a system that's been created is a biased one that's working for the advantage and the benefit of the oppressor. That's the nature of power. You grasp at it and then you hold on to it so that it can perpetuate the very system that does the heavy lifting for you. And when you are oppressed, not just by one who is powerful, but one powerful enough to create the system, then you have nothing else to turn to. You have no other recourse. For example, if some guy hits you, then 
even if you are weaker, then you can turn to the system. You can turn to the authorities and file a complaint. Report it to the, to the system who will act on your behalf. But what if the system is biased? What if you don't have a system that you can trust? What if that trust is broken? Then you're all alone. On the side of the oppressors was power, meaning that on the side of the oppressed was a sense of powerlessness. It's one thing to get hit by a person. It's another thing altogether to get hit by a power, an authority, a system. Because we all need a system to turn to. We need a recourse. We need an authority that's greater than all of the players. The object, the subject, the one doing the hitting, the one getting hit. We need a system, a power that's above and beyond all the subjects and objects of any sentence. Without a recourse, your best offer is to suffer uh, post-traumatic stress disorder That's what the uh, scientists would tell us. And at worst, the preacher, what does he say in verse 2 to 3? That it's better to die. And he says, actually, it's, it's better to never have lived at all. That's how much despair and hopelessness uh, can destroy and wreak havoc on somebody's life. It's better to never have been born than to be under oppression. Does it feel heavy yet? Yeah. It's not easy to talk about this for me. It's actually quite uncomfortable. I wrestled with this all week long. I really wish chapter 7 could have come later when it was Julie's turn to preach. (laughs) But here we are. My uh, parents and I, we were immigrants to this country in 1981. In fact, on August uh, 18th, uh, we celebrate our uh, 35th coming to America anniversary. And when my dad came, uh, he came out of a white-collar life. He was born uh, into a high sort of uh, uh, society name. Uh, noble class, part of the noble class, and uh, came to this country for a better opportunity for his family. And uh, money ran out quick, and he had to give up his computer science studies, and uh, he had to start peddling sunglasses and costume jewelry on the streets of Manhattan as a peddler. And then he saved up enough money to buy a dry cleaning store, and then uh, some more money, and uh, at some point we had a few stores. Uh, But Uh, At the heart of it, we became part of the servant class here in America, and we were blue-collar, and we were uh, dealing with people's uh, dirty laundry, literal dirty laundry. I do the metaphorical dirty laundry as a pastor. (laughs) And uh, uh, what was really helpful when we experienced a change in social status uh, was to have an alternate society where my father was still part of the noble class, and that was the local church. Because when he had 
the, uh, the system that he belonged to in society in, here in America was one that designated him a lower status uh, ranking, then it was really helpful to have the local church scene where he can be seen as a deacon or an elder or as a leader where people greeted him differently than people would greet him Monday through Saturday. It was sort of a, it's a saving grace for the immigrant church to have uh, a system that sees you and bestows dignity on you and provides for you an alternate narrative. And uh, it's an, it offers you an identity that can lend itself to healing and rest and flourishing. And I don't know that I would been, have been able to feel legitimate enough in this society Uh, to believe, to have hope, to not despair, to have enough psychological resources to be able to work hard and believe that working hard can lead to uh, a quote-unquote better life. And so I'm deeply thankful for the alternate system that my family and I were able to connect to. But what if you don't have an alternate system? Then you have despair and hopelessness. Now, the language I want you to understand is that we all need a system that we can turn to. We all need a system that we believe is working for us and not against us. Because we may not have the... the, the best relationships with individuals or even with groups of people. But if there's an unbiased system that we can turn to, we stop short of feeling despair and hopelessness. You don't shed the tears of oppression because you don't feel you're powerless and that all the power is on the side of the oppressor. So that's the key idea I want you to hold on to as we talk about a movement here in America called Black Lives Matter. Now, when I was first writing out the uh, draft of the sermon, I wrote there is an, uh, there is an African-American movement called Black Lives Matter. And then I changed it and I took out African, Amer- African and I just wrote there is an American movement called Black Lives Matter. Because that's one of the uh, microaggression things that, not, that minorities, now majority folks feel is if there is a white movie in Hollywood, we call it a movie. We call it the film industry. But if there's a movie with African-Americans in it, we call it a black movie. Or if there are Asians in it, we call it an Asian movie. We never call it just a movie. And so Black Lives Matter uh, uh, is not just an African-American movement. Because it's a movement that's calling us to be a better America. And so I am choosing to call it an American movement. And I want to help you understand in the light of today's text, in my humble opinion, this movement called Black Lives Matter, it exists as an outcry, not to individuals, not even to the idea of racism, but it's an outcry to the system that feels biased to the system that is in denial of its bias. Rebuttals to the movement that use phrases, alternate phrases like all lives matter, or these days, even blue lives matter, 
parentheses here, of course all lives matter. And of course we cannot condone anarchy or the murdering of police officers. Of course we can't do that. But while these alternate phrases are true in their own right, it misses the mark and fails, fails to communicate the accuracy of what Black Lives Matter communicates. Because if you say white lives matter or blue lives matter, you're failing to acknowledge. You're still refusing to acknowledge the brokenness of the system. And that's what's creating the despair, the hopelessness, and the tears. Of course, blue lives matter, but blue lives are part of the system. Of course, all lives matter. But here's what Dr. Willie Jennings and Dr. Sung Chan Rao uh, of, of the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is our denomination, this is what they uh, co-wrote together describing, helping us to understand what Black Lives Matter means. Okay, I'm going to read this to you. It was not all lives that were ripped from their homes in Africa. Is that true? It was not all lives that were separated from families and marched to the West African coast. Is this true? It was not all lives put into the dank, dark tombs of the slave castles. It was not all lives that were offered as a tithe to the church and accepted by the church. It was not all lives crammed into the European slave ships. It was not all lives laid side by side like cargo in the hull of the ship. It was not all lives that were force-fed because they staged hunger strikes. It was not all lives that were casually thrown overboard to, the dev to be devoured by sharks following the slave ships. It was not all lives that were brought to the new world as slave labor. It was not all lives stripped naked and put on the auction block. It was not all lives for whom the slave auction bell rang, often in rhythm to the church bell. It was not all lives that were brought, bought and sold by God-fearing Christians. It was not all lives that were whipped and beaten on the plantations. It was not all lives that were system and repeatedly raped by white slave owners. It was not all lives who were daily assaulted in their very identity as those made in the image of God. It was not all lives who were repeatedly told they were less than human. It was not all lives who were diminished by the three-fifth compromise, the Missouri Compromise, and the Dred Scott decision. It was not all lives whose communities were wiped out because they sought to build a life for themselves after emancipation. It was not all lives that were told separate but equal with equal never being equal. It was not all lives but black lives that hung like strange fruit from southern trees. It was not all lives. It was Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair, four little black lives who were blown up when they bombed the church. It was not all lives that were beset by attack dogs and by fire hoses. It was not all lives, but the black lives of Emmett Till, Metgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X, who were systematically assassinated. It was not all lives that are targeted for mass incarceration. It is not all lives that the prison industrial complex exploits. These historical events did not involve the destruction and death of all lives. They were black lives that have been systematically targeted and abused by American society. 
There has never been a movement in American history where our nation stated that all lives do not matter. 500 years of history have asserted that black lives do not matter. Verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Verse 4 says that strife is what naturally happens if we see each other as rivals, as threats, as being other. We are in strife. Our country is in strife. We as a nation, as a society, as a community, we are in strife. We are in conflict. And we are dysfunctional. We're divided, pretending we are united. Our country has achieved a lot. We've come a long ways. But at what cost? Uh, One of my favorite theologians and stand-up comedians, Louis C.K., he says that you can achieve anything. The human being can achieve anything if the human being is willing to throw fellow human beings and their suffering at it. For example, he says, if you want to achieve the pyramids, just throw Jews at it. He says, if you want a free labor force, throw Africans at it. If you want a railroad, throw the Chinese at it. If you want cheap labor, throw Latinos and other disenfranchised people at it. Just throw people and their suffering at your problems, and you'll solve those problems. But you will be in strife. You will be in conflict for generations and generations to come. Now, I think the real meat of our conversation today really uh, is in the application. So I have two application points for us. Let me set it up here. The question I want to ask in the application is, is there hope? And from everything that I feel and think and read, I think the only real hope is actual reconciliation. Right now, we are are in a state when trust is deeply broken. It's not that it's more broken, but it's coming to the fore. People have unprecedented means of expressing brokenness. And when trust is broken, words and thoughts and ideas matter less. You think about a relationship where trust is broken. There's only room for one thing, and that's action. When trust is broken, words carry little weight. And action has the potential to carry the day. And so I want to invite us to think about how we might make decisions, take action, and take responsibility on both sides of the conversation. Look again at verse 1. It says that they had no one to comfort them. That's talking about the ones being oppressed. And then later talking about the ones doing the oppressing. It says, but they had no one to comfort them. 
Here's what I understand. That human beings in society long for and need not power or even a system ultimately. Because power or a system is stand-in, is a stand-in for comfort. What the oppressed and the oppressor long for is comfort. Where does comfort come from? Comfort is the word that the preacher here uses to describe this idea that he unpacks in verses 9 and following, where he uses the word to. He uses the word companion. The idea of connectedness, of being warmed together, of being lifted up by the other. The word two, the number two, means that there is hope and help beyond the number one or the self. If I'm at the end of my resources, I will feel despair. I will shed tears of oppression and helplessness. Unless there is a two, somebody outside of me, somebody beyond me who can lift me up. Because I'm at a place where I can't lift myself up. And so our application, the two application points I have, is helping us to move forward towards real reconciliation by taking action. Okay, verse 9 to 11 says this, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can warm, one be warm alone? We are all connected and we have a shared problem into which Christ himself has entered. I was uh, learning about this fascinating thing over the last two weeks about the secret life of trees. I learned that trees, different species, all different kinds of trees, they're all connected to each other underneath. What I learned was that all these trees are connected by a complex and intricate system of fungal tubes. And any one tree is connected to up to 47 other trees by this fungal system. And they intelligently share resources with each other and they communicate through these fungal tubes. In one pinch of dirt... There are over seven miles of fungal tubes in one pinch of salt connecting these trees. And I want to just ask the question, if God had it in his mind to connect trees together, surely human beings are connected, no? Surely if one part of the body is hurting, then the other part cannot say, I don't need you, I don't care about you, I don't feel the pain. Surely we who are more complex, more highly evolved, we are connected also. So the first application point, uh, and I want you to, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because I want you to understand what this means. And I want to give you this language of transference. And that's the first application point. Embrace transference. Well, what is transference? I'm glad you asked. In a book titled The Course of Love, Alan Botton describes transference in this way. He says this, The structure looks something like this. 
an apparently ordinary situation or remark elicits from one member of a couple a reaction that doesn't seem quite warranted, being unusually full of annoyance or anxiety, irritability or coldness, panic or recrimination. The person on the receiving end is puzzled. After all, it was just a simple request for a loving goodbye, a plate or two left unwashed in the sink, a small joke at the other's expense, or a few minutes delay. Why then the peculiar and somehow outsized response? The behavior makes little sense when one tries to understand it according to the current facts. It's as if some aspect of the present scenario were drawing energy from another source, as if it were unwittingly triggering a pattern of behavior that the other person originally developed long ago in order to meet a particular threat which has now somehow been subconsciously re-evoked. The overreact is responsible, as the psychological term puts it, for the transference of an emotion from the past onto someone in the present who perhaps doesn't entirely deserve it. Our minds are oddly not always good at knowing what era they are in. They jump a little too easily. What's worse for the loved ones standing in the vicinity is that people in the throes of a transference have no easy way of knowing, let alone calmly explaining what they are up to. They simply feel that their response is entirely appropriate to the occasion. When our minds are involved in transference, we lose the ability to give the worst conclusions that the past once mandated. Surely we know the difference between our partner and a disappointing parent, between a husband's short delay and a father's permanent abandonment, between some dirty laundry and a civil war. The business of repatriating emotions emerges as one of the most delicate and necessary tasks of love. To accept the risks of transference is to prioritize empathy and understanding over irritation and judgment. Two people can come to see that sudden bursts of anxiety or hostility may not always be directly caused by them, and so should not always be met with fury or wounded pride. Bristling and condemnation can give way to compassion. We don't need to be constantly reasonable in order to have good relationships. All we need to have mastered is the occasional capacity to acknowledge with good grace that we may, in one or two areas, be somewhat insane. Um, pastor 101, when you first become a pastor, the first thing you learn about is transference. That people, in fact, this is a vow that I found on the internet. The collar you're about to don will serve as a big red bullseye for transference of sentiment about a parent, a deity, and or institution. Sometimes that transference is expressed as undue adoration or infatuation, but more often in terms of resentment, insecurity, and need. This is a privilege as much as a burden, and it comes at a cost. So Pastor 101 is being okay with transference. People looking at you and hating you or loving you disproportionately in undeserved ways. Pastor 101 is embrace transference. That's the only mechanisms, mechanism we as human beings have to heal one another. If you're going to reject transference, you're rejecting relationships. You're rejecting people. In fact, I would go so far as to say you cannot have a conversation without transference coming into play in some way, shape, or form. 
people will bestow on you love or hate that you do not deserve. The key is to stay engaged with that person, in conversation with that person, until the transference wears off. And then you can finally, after 50 or 60 years, get to your own relationship with that person. And that's what it's like to enter this conversation about systemic racism. You can feel, as a majority white person, you can feel like, I haven't committed any crimes. My ancestors fought in the Civil War on the side of the North. Why am I being punished for other people's crimes? Well, because you're a Christian. And you're saying yes to transference. You're willing to stand there as a stand-in and have the conversation. That's why. Embrace the transference. If you fight the transference, you're saying no to the relationship. And relationship is where uh, reconciliation happens. Trust, as it stands today, is so broken that before we can actually begin to talk about anything that's relevant, we have to work through the stuff that's being transferred onto you first. Even if it feels personally untrue, or the conversation or the tone of it feels disproportionate or inaccurate or even inappropriate to your personal story, you still say yes to the person. Be okay with transference. Second, is be a learner. Try to have conversations with people beyond your own echo chamber. It's not going to help you if you are an African-American person to just keep talking to African-Americans about this systemic injustice that are at play in our country. Because now that's just an echo chamber. You just get to hear what you already think, what you already say. If you're a white American, it's not helpful to just talk to white people. Talk to others. Ask them questions. Buy them lunch. Sit down and say, I want to ask some questions. Can I do that? Can we have a conversation beyond my paranoia about being politically incorrect? I feel like as a white person, everything I say can and will be used against me in a court of whatever. I can do or say no right. It's an awkward time to be a white person. Can we start there? And have conversations beyond my own echo chamber. Journey to Mosaic, November 10 to 13. Kent Lotus leading us. He has these wonderful, informative handouts. Kent Lotus, where are you? Raise your hand. Sit up. Talk to that man about participating on this journey. It's a bus ride. Three days. You're going to get on a bus, go to different places, visit different sites, be partnered with a person of a different race, and have lots of heart-to-heart conversations. Engage in an experience together. I'm going to have for you later on uh, a 
list of reading resources, videos and articles and books that you can read if you need some sort of private place where you can begin to learn and stretch your mind and perspective a little bit. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You notice verse 12 starts with two. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And then suddenly it says a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And as followers of Christ, we believe that Christ is the third strand. It's never just you and me left to our own devices. Because both of us are equally fallen, equally wicked, and equally incapable of having the kind of conversation, engaging in the kind of reconciliation process that we need by ourselves. We need a third strand. And that third strand is Christ. Christ has entered into our oppression. He has entered into the despair and the hopelessness, the pain, the tears, the suffering, the plight. And if transference is the layering on of baggage from your past onto someone in the present, then Christ is the stand-in for God, onto whom we layer on all our baggage, and what's Christ's response to us committing transference to him? He does what's called reverse transference. It's what theologians call imputation. We transfer our baggage onto Christ. That's our sin, our brokenness. And Christ does reverse transference by imputing his righteousness Onto us. And he says, I who know no sin will become sin for you, so that you can focus on a reconciling work that includes saying, I'm sorry, saying, I did not know, and I will never. You are free to say these words because Christ has declared you righteous apart from you having to be righteous on your own. You are free to learn and grow and repent and change. Towards God, towards one another, and without Christ, we will be easily broken. Amen.